You're going to need your Bibles. We are in John chapter 18. Uh, if you've been around, you know that. We're in a long study in the Gospel of John. If you happen to be visiting this weekend, uh, just bring you up to speed on that, that we are studying John's Gospel, and we are up to the last few hours of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, and the, the trial before Pilate is where we find ourselves now. Uh, the text, however, takes us to one of the most important questions, and maybe the most important question, that every human being has to ask and answer, and it is this question, where do we find truth? Does truth exist? Is there such a thing as truth, and if there is where do we find it? So in this story of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, this, this subject is going to come up, and it actually is the undergirding or overarching story, uh, the macro story, and the question of the universe, if you will, the question of truth. Uh, it takes us to the questions of the meaning and the purpose of our lives, and when you stop the busyness of life and you get a little bit philosophical and you begin to think about your life and you wonder, where did we come from, this thing called the human race? Where did our world come from? And where are we headed? Anytime you lose someone that you love who's passed on to, into eternity, will you ask these questions? So where did they go? And will we see them again? Are there moral principles that we should live our life by? In fact, even more than moral principles, are there actually moral laws? Moral laws like the laws of gravity that would control how we live our lives. Uh, were we created on purpose? Uh, by intelligent design of some sort? Or are we simply some great cosmic accident that happened in the universe? And in either case, what are our responsibilities then to life and the other people who live around us? And so in our day, you know this, and we talk about it an awful lot, that truth is hotly debated in the generation we find ourselves living in. These are our days. The question of who can know what truth is. Is there a universal truth that applies to all people of all times, of all generations? And if truth does exist at all, how can you possibly discern between all the various options what actually is truth? Now, humans have answered that question, that macro question, in very different ways throughout the history of humanity. And if we were to buy, divide human history into just a very broad, sweeping generalization with very broad strokes, sociologists would say there have been three major eras of human history, the pre-modern era, the modern era and the postmodern era. Now, they, these are broad generalizations. There's not a specific date in time on the calendar where we switched from one to the other. But the pre-modern world was the vast majority of world history was lived in this pre-modern prior to the modern age of enlightenment and rationalism. Each one of these eras looked at truth in a very particular way. And so the pre-modern world was largely a religious world or a spiritual world. And in the pre-modern world, they would say that truth was given to you, truth was revealed to you by your God, either the God of the Bible or if you believed some other world religion, your gods would tell you what you should believe. Truth was given to you by a supreme being. Then in the turning to the modern world, in the so-called enlightenment and the great thinkers that arose and the rational thought and mind and science, truth is now largely understood to be a scientific statement or a rational statement of our mind, what I can see and test in the, the laboratory, what I can prove to be true. And then in the postmodern world, 
the last 60, 80, maybe up to 100 years, the locus of truth has shifted now away from science even, for that matter. Truth must still exist, and there is likely some form of absolute truth, but we decide what is truth and what is not truth. In fact, we decide it in a number of ways. We might decide truth through legislative fiat. We might decide it in the courts. If the courts of our day decide that something is true, they declare it to be true, then I guess it must be true. Or truth is based solely at the individual level. I will make my own decisions about what is true for me, and we therefore can hold various positions on truth, even competing contradictory views of the truth. And so we have moved in those three major eras from God to science and to self. And the questions, does truth exist, can we know it, and where do we find it, are just as important today as they have been in every generation because the foundational assumptions that we make about what is life all about and what it means to be human and what is the path to human flourishing all hang in the balance of this question, is there truth, can we know it, is there a standard by which we should live our lives? Now, the big idea in the text is pretty straightforward. The idea in the text is simply this, that Jesus declares himself in this text to be the king of truth. That's the big idea. And he calls us in this text, the final sentence that we will read, to listen to his voice, that his voice is indeed the voice of truth. So we're going to look at two things in this text. We'll read it here in a moment. We're going to look at the fake news, the false accusations. And then we're going to see the real news. We're going to see Jesus' defense. That's where we're going to take it. And I know it's quirky titles, but whatever. I couldn't come up with anything better this week, but that's what it's going to be. So let's read through the text. Now, we're going to put up a beautiful painting of this scene. There are many pieces of art on this scene of Jesus before Pilate, and you'll see one on the screen as we read along. It says, And then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, the praetorium. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate said to him, oh, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. Okay, the false accusations. Uh, The context, and we looked at it already last week, 
but just mention it quickly. Jesus has to endure a six-part interrogation in these few hours. There are three trials before religious leaders and then three more before civil leaders. So last week we were looking at the interrogation under Annas and that text ended in verse 24 saying that they sent him to Caiaphas and then our text that we just read opens with they lead him from Caiaphas out to Pilate. Now scholars and biblical detectives and commentaries, they will try to merge together the four stories of the gospels. Each one of the gospels giving us a little bit different details on this story. And if you overlay the four together, you piece together what happened to Jesus during these days. And there are some questions. The question of, they took him to Annas, but where was Caiaphas? Was Caiaphas there at the original inquiry? They sent him to Caiaphas. Did Caiaphas live somewhere else, or did he live in that very same palace with Annas? Uh, that palace has been uncovered in archaeological digs. It's part of a museum now in Jerusalem. That palace was some 13,000 square feet. It was a massive, much like the home that most of you live in. It was large enough that there could have been multiple apartments in that palace. So it is not unlikely that Caiaphas may have had an apartment right there in the same complex as Annas. They send him across the courtyard or maybe they sent him down the street to Caiaphas' own house. We don't know. But what we know is that somewhere in the midst of this, the Sanhedrin, the council come together, the governing rulers of Judea, and they meet together. Now we know that before dawn, there were two conversations. And then as the sun comes up, Luke 22 tells us this, when day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. Now that word council in the Greek language is literally the word Sanhedrin. And some of your English translations, it's transliterated in your Bibles, and it will say it is the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling council. There are 70 men plus one, 71, 70 plus the high priest, and they are in charge of all the religious, legal, and civil law under the governance of Rome, yes, but given incredible freedom to rule their own people. And so the council sends him to Pilate. And here stands Jesus before Pilate for part one of three of a civil trial. Now, I'm going to just mention this because John doesn't include the middle chunk. So we read up to verse 38 where he says, I find no fault in him. And then it looks like the conversation just moves right on from there. And he says again and again, I find no fault. I find no fault. I find no fault. But between verse 38 and verse 39, Luke inserts this, this fact that he sends him to Herod. And there's a whole other conversation that takes place with Herod in between those two verses. Then he comes back to Pilate to finish the conversation. All right, that's the context. The encounter is riddled with problems. I'm going to give you four of them. Number one, the trials themselves are wrong. Wrong on several levels. Jewish trials could not happen at night. They could only happen in the daytime. So in other words, those first two interrogations under Annas and Caiaphas were actually illegal. Jesus was not given legal counsel. And under Jewish law and Roman law, he should have been given a defender, but he was not. He was asked to speak on his own behalf, which was also against the law. He could not be made to defend himself nor to incriminate himself. And then finally, one more detail, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. In the case of capital punishment under Roman law, the Roman law required at least a 24-hour waiting period before that person was crucified. Why? Well, similar to our day, when someone is given the death penalty and they sit on death row, in some cases for years, 
but it is to allow time for an appeal for other facts to come into place before the person is executed. In Roman law, they're like, we'll give you at least 24 hours to present your appeal, but in Jesus' case, he was crucified immediately. This trial has problems all over it. Secondly, the accusations are false. Now, what accusations do they bring? Uh, Pilate asked that question. Uh, it's interesting when he asks the questions. What accusation do you have? They're almost like they're, they're pushed back on their heels a little bit. They weren't prepared for that question from Pilate. Now, why? Because obviously they had already been in conversation with Pilate to some degree. There was some collusion already going on, and we know this because Pilate had sent a legion out to the garden to arrest Jesus. So somewhere previous, they had had enough conversation that there's enough evidence that this rabble-rouser is out and we need to arrest him, and Pilate had given permission for his very own soldiers to go and bring him and arrest him. And I think the Jewish leaders just figured, we've got enough evidence to get him arrested. We just take him to Pilate, and it's just going to be a sign, sealed, and delivered, rubber stamp it, crucify the guy. But Pilate kind of sets them back. He's like, huh, let's talk a bit. What are your accusations against this guy? Luke gives us the details. We find this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute, taxes, to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Three things, he's stirring up the crowd, he's a rabble rouser, he might stir the people to riot against you, he forbids people to pay taxes, which they should be paying, and he claims that he himself is a king. Now we know that all those accusations are false, but that's what they say. The third thing, their motivations are veiled. They're true motivations. What these religious leaders are uh, doing with Pilate is they're kind of trying to buddy up with him. They're like, hey, we have gone out and done the hard work for you. This rabble rouser who is stirring up our people and stirring up unrest in this part of the world that you are governing, uh, it's your backyard and we've done the hard work. In truth, we're helping you out. But in reality, they were only helping themselves out. They were fearful of losing their own power and control. They were jealous of these leaders. And, and you will know this well from the context that underneath all of this, there is at the core a rejection of who Christ was and is. It is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, that great evangelical prophet of the Old Testament had so much to say about the suffering servant, the Lord who would come. And Isaiah said when he shows up, he will be despised and rejected by men. And it is fulfilled in this. At the center of the conversation, the Jews were rejecting who he claimed to be. Now, of all people, of all people, these people, the scribes, the Pharisees, the council, they should have known who he was. Jesus poked at this back in John 5. You, speaking to a group of the very same leaders, you spiritual leaders of Israel, search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. You've missed the boat, Jesus is saying. When we get post-resurrection over to the preaching at Pentecost, Peter will point to these very same people, the religious leaders, the crowd standing there in the temple, and he will say to him, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. And then look at this key phrase, whom you delivered over and denied. You denied that he was who he said he was. In the presence of Pilate, you denied the holy and the righteous one. Their motivations are veiled. And finally, and this is, uh, you probably picked up on it already, the story is dripping with irony. It really is. 
When you think about what's going on here, these accusers are standing outside the governor's headquarters and they won't even go into the governor's headquarters because they don't want to become ceremonially unclean because it is a high and holy week and they want to eat the Passover meal. Now, now think about it. Uh, Jewish law said, don't go into the home of a Gentile. You will be dirty for at least a day. They wanted to celebrate the Passover. They might be thinking, they, have they cleaned all the yeast out of this place? There, there was a, a rumor around the Praetorian headquarters that there was actually an abortuary inside that Praetorian headquarters. Perhaps there was, that there were bodies of dead children in there. You could defile yourself. Even the dust off Gentiles' feet inside those hallways could defile them. And so we can't go inside. So governor, can you come outside to talk to us? We got a worship service to get to. Do you not see the irony all over this? Think it through. They're standing here. They're making false accusations. They're breaking multiple legal rules. They're making up false charges, but they won't even break the most minor of the ceremonial laws. It's almost like, can you hurry up and kill this guy so we can get to church? That's really what's going on. And the greatest irony of all that should not be lost on us is that this week was one of the most high and holy weeks in Jewish calendar the Passover celebration, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the reminder that a spotless lamb from their flock would be taken, its blood would be shed and put on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over his children in that great and most tragic plague in Egypt. And so this week of celebration with unleavened bread with cleaning all the yeast out of the home, with special food of bitter herbs and roasted lamb. It all focused them on this thought that a spotless lamb would be shed in your place, that God would allow a substitute. God would allow a sacrificial lamb to stand in your place. And this is Passover week. And this particular Passover, they literally would kill the lamb of God. And they would stand at the cross and they would mock him. And then presumably, and of course we don't know for certain, but presumably they would leave the cross and they would get home before sunset so they could celebrate the Passover with their family and their friends. We just killed the Lamb of God, now let's eat dinner. The crazy accusations and the contradictions are all over the text. But the real news follows in Jesus' defense. And Pilate asked him a series of four questions. Now, they had raised three accusations against him, the Jewish council had, and only one of them seems to be of interest to Pilate. So he's stirring up the people. He's causing a riot. And I think Pilate in his mind is thinking, you know what? You people are always fighting about something. Tell me something I don't know. In fact, I think Pilate is probably thinking, if you people weren't always getting worked up over some minor issue in your own law, in fact, guys, I wouldn't be in Jerusalem. I would much rather be at my home in Caesarea Philippi, my house on the ocean. I would rather be out there, and tonight I could sit on the balcony and drink a glass of wine and look at the sunset, but I've got to be in this stinking headquarters in Jerusalem because you're having a feast, and we know with a million people descending on the city, there's probably going to be trouble, and you think this guy's stirring up the crowds. I don't really care about that. Taxes, tell me something I don't know. Who loves to pay taxes? Like nobody under Pax Romana is singing and dancing as they're downloading their TurboTax. Like that just is not a thing. We get it. But it's the comment about saying he is king that lands. 
Pilate grabs onto it because as an envoy, as a representative of Rome, as an ambassador for Caesar, he is to keep a close watch on any rebel rising up to challenge the emperor's rule. So he wants to know about this king question. Heads back inside and the questions begin. Number one, are you king of the Jews? Verse 33. Jesus kind of pokes back. So you recognize me? Are you saying that on your own or because somebody told you? Like, I think Jesus is having a bit of fun in this moment. Am I a Jew? Don't be daft. Don't be dumb. Answer the question. What is it that you have done? Your own leaders have turned you over to me. You must have done something. Are you stirring up the crowds? Are you forbidding paying taxes? Are you raising an army of your own? And Jesus' answer is like, well, that's what you would expect of me if my kingdom was of this world. But my followers are not going to raise an army. My followers are not going to take up arms. My followers are not going to violently overthrow the government because that is not how my kingdom works. Okay, now let's just press pause there for a good Mennonite moment. Because I'm sure somebody here is already connecting the dots in your minds because Jesus has an awful lot to say about what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, his longest sermon on the kingdom, he said this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is what life in God's kingdom looks like. He goes on to say this, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. And all over the New Testament is this idea that the kingdom of God is indeed an unstoppable force and it is working its way through human history in very unlikely ways. And it starts out small, Jesus says, like a smallest seed in the garden, the mustard seed, or like a pinch of yeast in a, a batch of dough that permeates through that whole piece of dough. My kingdom, he says, is an upside-down kingdom. In the world's kingdom, if you want to have great and you want to be power, then you need to be the big man on campus. You need to take charge. You need to be something. But if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to put a towel over your arm and learn to be a servant. You need to come humbly like a child. You've got to empty yourself. In fact, the first of the Beatitudes is blessed are the poor in spirit. Literally, blessed are those who are bankrupt in spirit. They have finally realized and reached the end of themselves, I have nothing within me to give. I need something outside of me. And Jesus would say to Nicodemus, truly, truly, John chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nick, you were born of water. You understand physical birth. You know that. That's natural birth. You need a spiritual birth. You need to be born again. In other words, you need to go back to the beginning. You need to unlearn everything you've learned. You need to start over again. You need to humble yourself like a child. And so he's like, oh, so you are a king. You are a king. And scholars would tell us that Jesus' answer, you say that I am, could actually properly be translated in the affirmation, you are right in saying so. That's the tone of the original language. And the next sentence makes it clear. Jesus says, yes, indeed, this is why I was born. This is why I came into the world. You say so, and this is why I've come. This is my promise. And he gives us his purpose statement. 
For this reason I came, to be a witness to the truth, to declare the truth, and everyone who's on the side of truth will listen to me. Now, that's a great declaration for our day. All right, pretty well done with the text. Until Pilate's cynical response. These last three words, what is truth? Now, we don't know with certainty what's going on in Pilate's mind. And it's interesting if you roll those words through your mind and you say them in different ways, with a sneer, with a smile, with a question mark, what is truth, what is truth, what is truth? You know, however, how was it said? But when we pull together everything we know about Pilate, which is not much, but you pull together from the Bible and the Roman historians, Josephus and Philo, and you get a picture of this insecure, paranoid, and melancholy man. He was appointed the governor of Judea, only because he had married into power. He was not a Roman citizen, but he married the granddaughter of Caesar in order to work his way up the power train, and he thought that marrying into the family of power would give him a ticket to influence, and instead, he is assigned a region at the far end of the Roman Empire. A backwater little country that nobody cared about with a group of people nobody understood, nowhere uh, on the map with notoriously unruly people who had a strange diet. He didn't really like his job. He didn't like his post, and he didn't like the people he was overseeing. Now you're like, how do you know that? Because there's a couple comments. Josephus, Roman historian, indicates that he was constantly fighting, constantly in tension with the religious leaders, constantly offending them because he did not understand their ways. That he was given to emotional outbursts and overreactive leadership. And one of the most scathing reviews was written by Philo of Alexandria, or however you say that. You know what? This picture we're going to put up, he looks like the, uh, where's that picture? Throw it up there. Come on. Doesn't he look like the guy off the Raiders of the Lost Ark? He, uh, He chose poorly. He chose poorly. Anyway, maybe that's Philo. Maybe it's not. Philo writes of him, and he says this, quote, unquote, he is known for his briberies, insults, robberies, outrages, wanton injuries, executions without trial, constantly repeated, ceaseless, and supremely grievous cruelty. Wow, what a governor. Most famously, in his decade of rule, he oversaw the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. But a couple years later, in AD 36, apparently he went too far, even in his own government's mind. There was an uprising of some form in Samaria. He declared the Emergency Act. He sent in the troops and he squashed it. And Rome was not pleased. They withdrew him, they removed him from office, brought him back to Rome, and they tucked him away in a back hallway with an administrative task. And Eusebius, the fourth century historian, says upon his return to Rome, he fell into such great shame and depression that he ultimately commits suicide. What an ignoble end to his story. Now you might be saying, so what? Well, so what is this? What we know about this man, what we piece together, is he was not a happy camper. And I think his cynical response to Jesus, I think it was said with a bit of a sneer. What is truth? I don't believe in truth. What has the truth ever done for me? Now, it's speculation, of course. 
The conversation ends abruptly and he's either frustrated or he's simply bored. I'm done with this. I've heard enough. There's nothing here and I haven't even had my breakfast yet. And he goes back outside and he says to the rulers, I am not sure what you guys are on about, but I can find nothing worthy of death. There's no guilt in this man. And that's where our text ends. And so I said at the top of the hour that this text points us to perhaps the most important question that every human being has to ask and answer what is truth. Now notice quickly there are two prophetic themes sprinkled into this text. The first is in verse 32. He says this is to fulfill the kind of death that Jesus said he was going to die. The Jews, you see, want to execute him on a Roman cross, raise him up in crucifixion because they wanted him to be made a spectacle of, that he would be hanged along a busy roadway where everyone could be warned, this is what happens if you rebel against Rome and if you follow this teacher. And in that moment, the sovereignty of God is shining through to us. Because it is not that G the Jews wanted to kill Jesus or that the Romans would impale him on a cross, but it that was Jesus would willingly take upon himself an Old Testament curse. And so you go back to Deuteronomy 21. There is a particular level of shame connected to an Old Testament law with a person who is hung on a tree. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Now, you will know this, that the most common form of capital punishment in the Old Testament was stoning. A person would be thrown on the ground, and they would pummel them with stones and put them to death, not crucify them. And so if a person was hung on a tree, it was for a particular crime, and it was to show he had been cursed by God. Now, we don't know precisely what that meant, but there was some special level of shame connected to being hung on a tree, this indictment, this abandonment, this curse from God, I have forsaken you. And it's interesting in the book of Acts that three times the description of the crucifixion in the book of Acts, three times is called, you hanged him on a tree. It speaks to the kind of death that Jesus would die. And it tells us that Jesus willingly took upon himself our curse. So in John 3, Moses has lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. In John 8, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know I am he. John 12, and when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And the point is simply this, that Jesus' sovereign plan was to die the death of a cursed, God-forsaken man. And he says to us, look at the cross. Look at the cross. See me hanging there in all of this cursedness. See me there because in this curse is your salvation. And the world would say, in fact, even in your mind right now, you might be saying, that's foolish. That's crazy. And Paul says precisely that. This is why we preach Christ crucified. And 1 Corinthians 1 says, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Look to the one hung on a tree, absorbing the curse of God in our place. The second reference is in verse 36, where Jesus describes his kingdom. Now, I won't spend a long time here, but we've talked about it a lot. 
The Old Testament has predicted a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. Basically, a kingdom who would be the king of kings, the Lord of lords, not just king of the Jews, but king of the world, king of the ages, king of the cosmos. And we are told that this king would enter humanity humbly. In fact, Zechariah says, rejoice greatly. Your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of the donkey. But then he goes on to say, and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. What Zechariah is saying is your king is going to come humbly, but make no mistake, this is indeed the very same king that Psalm 72, prophetically messianic psalm, points to a king whose dominion will be to the ends of the earth. He will be the king of the cosmos. So read it and see it. A humble king who now rules and reigns. It's an echo to Daniel's prophecy, the son of man. The son of man who came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, I got to just stay here for a moment because John the Baptist comes preaching and what does he say? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus starts his preaching ministry by saying the kingdom of God is at hand and the inbreaking of God's kingdom is the central theme of all of the New Testament preaching and ministry. The promise of the already but not yet kingdom of God. What do you mean? The already. He is already ruling and reigning. King Jesus is seated by the father's throne and he is, are you with me? Ruling and reigning. And yet we don't see everything under his control yet, right? So we continue to look to that day, that coming day, that forward day, when everything will be put under his feet. And so Corinthians says, he must reign until he has put everything under his feet. And then he turns around and he hands it to the father and he says, done. And that passage ends with this. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain, because he's ruling. And he's going to hand it over to the kingdom. And so then you get to Revelation chapter 11. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. And you cue Handel's Messiah. Hallelujah. Right? That's where it's from. And we talk a lot about this. We talk a lot about this that we are children of the high king, that our citizenship is not actually here on earth. Our citizenship is in the coming kingdom of God. We believe Aslan is on the move. We believe our true home is in the coming kingdom where the rule and reign of God is complete. And meanwhile, we work with joy and energy and hope and passion because God is giving us enough good glimpses of his grace, his goodness, his power, and his mercy to keep us going one more day. Amen? Now listen to an 80-year-old book. From the New Testament times to the present. The church of Christ has been a hopeful church. Pessimism has no place in the Christian consciousness. No matter how dark the days or how discouraging the outlook of the world, Christians who understand the teaching of the word of God and believe it to be true have universally been optimists. Optimists not 
because they believed that man was becoming better and better and making the world a constantly better place in which to live, or because they shut their eyes to the evil that surrounded them in the world, but because they knew the God in whom they trusted and knew that his promises can never fail of fulfillment. Is that not good? What makes it even better is when you recognize the date on this book. It was written in the middle of World War II. You see, the truth is we are fighting a battle, but it is a spiritual battle. We're fighting sin, we're fighting evil, we're fighting lies and deception, we are fighting the flourishing, fighting for the flourishing of humanity. And we sing a lot of battle songs. If you listen to the words of the worship songs that we sing, so many of them speak of this spiritual battle that we're in. They have been part of our Christian heritage all through the centuries, this spiritual battle. There are so many great old hymns. As I'm prepping this week, an old tune starts rolling through my head, and I am sure that I have not sung this hymn in at least 40 years, but somehow it was rolling through my mind back from the 1880s, and no, I wasn't there, but we sang it. <laughs> Lead on, O King Eternal, the day of March has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest, your tent will be our home. Through days of preparation, your grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease and holiness shall whisper a sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing or rolls of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Lead on, O King Eternal. We follow, not with fear. For gladness breaks like morning where'er your face appears. Your cross is lifted o'er us. We journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. Does that not sing good? Now we never sing it, but it sounds good. And so we pray, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. So the battle for truth matters. The question for truth matters. And we live in a day when truth is being radically undermined and redefined. And yet Jesus says, my kingdom is a kingdom of truth. He had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am truth. And the fact of the matter remains, friends, that truth, you know this, is very, very stubborn. Truth is actually exclusive. Truth, to be truth, is actually black and white. Truth is truth. And at the very same time, truth is liberating and freeing when we live within its bounds. And so in our day, let me just poke the bear for a moment. We are redefining everything. And our culture around us no longer believes in truth. Our culture no longer believes in moral absolutes. And if you're unhappy with the boundaries declared by God, if you're unhappy with the boundaries declared by science, or even the boundaries declared by law, you can simply rewrite the meaning of words. The word marriage no longer means what the word marriage has meant for millennia in North America. Being human 
is no longer a guarantee that your life is precious. Dr. Seuss's Horton, here's a who, has been thrown on the trash heap. A person's a person no matter how small. You see, there is some nebulous definition now of what personhood is. And there is a distinction now between being a human and being a person. And so if you have not yet reached personhood, you are just a human, your life is expendable. So whether you are in the womb or whether you are at the end of your life suffering with dementia, if you do not have what it requires to be a person, you are now expendable. Human sexuality is no longer defined by the decree of God. In the beginning, he created man. Male and female, he created them. So if you don't like God's word, no longer even defined by science. Science will tell you that if you have an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome, that the determination has been made regarding your sexuality. But now the psychological self can declare itself whatever it wants to be. Forget what God says. Forget even what science says. My truth will be my truth. And why do I poke at these massive cultural issues? I poke at them to make this point that you and I should be bold in asking ourselves the question and asking the question of our culture. And every follower of Jesus must ask this very basic question when we bump up against any philosophy, any teaching, any religion, we must ask the very simple question, is it true? We should have no shame in asking that question because truth is absolute, truth is exclusive, truth is stubborn, and we should have no fear. If truth is truth, we should want to know the truth. Amen? There was one who claimed to be the king of truth and that all who followed him would hear his voice. And so the question we have to ask is, what have we done with his voice? And the great hope that I have for the day that we're living in, the opportunities that we have in our day, this is my great hope, that the truth of God always prevails. So regardless of what goes on in our particular generation, and every generation has been dark in its own way, God's truth will always prevail. And you might ask the question, how do you know truth? So Jesus gave us the answer in John 8. He said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word... You're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Could you stand with me? I want to pray for you. We'll sing together. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take by your spirit whatever needs to land in people's hearts and let it land, and that anything else like chaff would blow away. I pray in a particular way that you would protect us from the the evil one who would take and twist, as he did from the very beginning, that question, did God really say, and cause us to doubt or to question. And so, Lord, by your spirit, would you do a good work among us this weekend? Jesus, you promised us that you were the king of truth, that for this purpose that you came into the world to declare the truth and that all who are concerned for the truth will listen to your voice. And Lord, there are moments where we feel like a very small minority in the day that we live in, a small minority listening for your voice. But Father, I pray that the truth of your kingdom would prevail. I pray, God, we know that that great and coming day of the Lord is be before us. And in the meanwhile, we stay encouraged as we continue to get out of bed every day and take our marching orders from you and from your word. And so, Lord, keep us. 
Keep us strong. Keep us true to your word. Hold us tight. As in the prayers of the Lord's prayer, keep us from the evil one. We ask these things for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.